Oh, that's good stuff. As you open to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, I thought it would just be fun as I was communion, pondering. Um, as you think back to that, that year you came to faith, oh, some of us it might be a little longer, you might have to kind of start adding up the years and kind of figure out what it was. Get that year in your head, and on a count of three, I, all, I want us all to say the year, okay? And kind of with your ears, listen around you. That'll be kind of neat. Ready? Count of three. One, two, three. 1983. That's fun. That's good. Yeah, we share the bond in Jesus. That's exciting stuff. It's good we took communion this morning. Um, sometimes you'll hit issues you talk about where there's disagreement, and that's okay. Um, but around this, <laughs> there's no disagreement, is there? Uh, there's only one Savior. Um, we've committed the beginning of our series. If you're new here, we've been studying the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit in our life, the indwelling Spirit of God. And uh, we've talked about the Holy Spirit's identity, His work, His ministry, and uh, we've wanted to also discuss some of the questions that arise. And, and, and one of the questions that seems to arise often is regarding sign gifts. We know as a Christian, the Bible says we've all been given spiritual gifts. We talked about that last year, or last week. And that the Holy Spirit distributes, as he will, spiritual gifts to believers. But there are some of them mentioned, specifically tongues, prophecy, healing, and miracles, where the question comes up, are they still in operation today? I mean, are those gifts something that the church should be practicing today? And so I was going to title the message, The Truth About Sign Gifts, I Think, <laughs> um, as we go through this. But uh, I think the scriptures really do give some good clarity for us. I think they give us some good parameters. I think they give us some good direction. Um, and so I, I kind of want to look at specifically two of them this week. We'll, we'll hit a couple more next week. Uh, tongues and prophecy. And again, it's our goal to learn together. And so let's do that here. Um, I think it helps sometimes to look back at history um, and how the church fathers and how believers before us uh, explored the things of the Spirit, maybe how they wrestled a little bit. From New Testament times through the 8th century, there were uh, some of the fathers, Clement, uh, Tertullian, Augustine, and uh, the focus of most of the concerns during that time was on the deity of Christ. The influence of Gnosticism came in, who denied, the Gnostics denied the deity of Christ, and our early church fathers fought and made sure that there was no doubt. Fully God, fully man. The incarnate Christ. The Holy Spirit's ministry, however, that time, it seemed to be still being established. There was some, even like today actually, a little bit, uh, there was some confusion about really the role of the Holy Spirit. Well, medieval times came and Gnosticism was still a problem in the church they had to deal with. The Gnostics also denied the deity of the Holy Spirit, but again, that was kind of put on the back shelf. In the 8th to the 15th century, a schism developed between the Eastern and the Western church over the teaching of the Holy Spirit. The main questions that had arisen that really created the divide of the debate was, does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father alone, or does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son? The Eastern Church said, 
No, the Holy Spirit only proceeds from the Father, not the Son. The Western Church says, whoa, wait a minute. Oh, no, no, no. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The implications are no small thing. Because what the Eastern Church was saying is that you could come to the Father in relationship by the Spirit only. You didn't need the Son. See a problem? Western Church obviously said no. Eastern Church opened the door to pluralism. Anybody could come into relationship with God without coming through Jesus Christ. The Western Church says, I don't think so. And so there was this schism that divided, and it was over the role of the, and the person of the Holy Spirit. The 16th through 17th century came, as you know, the Reformation. Luther, Calvin brought a deepening theology of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's involvement in the process and the result of receiving the Scriptures gave the church great confidence in the inspiration of Scripture and the Holy Spirit's presence in every facet of our lives. John Owens became a voice for the sanctification, that, that it was a work of the Holy Spirit which allowed the believer to grow in godliness. The 18th century scholasticism kind of became prominent. Scholasticism kind of put the Holy Spirit on a shelf and said it's just not even really that important. We even talk about the Holy Spirit. Even Wesley didn't have his greatest day when he stumbled with the assertion that complete sanctification by the Holy Spirit was possible where we could reach perfection in this life. Church wrestled with that. Finney talked about the role of the Holy Spirit in revival. And miraculous was emphasized. Emotional, um, emotionalism kind of had a little bit more of a focus on it. Liberal theologians in the 18th century and still to this day questioned the authority of Scripture and the inerrancy, which led to questions about the infallibility of Scripture. The beginning of the 20th century, 1906, the Suzu revival came with the preaching of William Seymour. Pentecostalism became defined and grew in popularity. And Pentecostalism had three main teachings. A baptism of the Holy Spirit was necessary as a second experience subsequent to salvation. Everybody needed it. At least that's what Pentecostalism said. Speaking in tongues was evidence that one was baptized with the Spirit, Pentecostalism said. Pentecostalism put forth that all gifts, sign gifts, are to be experienced by all and needed and to be sought and used in the church today. Well, the mid-20th century came in the charismatic movement. Last week, I don't necessarily like that phrase because we're all really charismatics, but that's the title given to it. Came, and it was kind of an offshoot of Pentecostalism. Charismatic movement came and said, you know, we're, we don't really agree that every believer needs a second baptism. Some did. Some said not necessarily. Some said, yeah, every believer needs to have a second experience of the baptism of the Spirit, but they don't need to speak in tongues. And so the charismatic movement kind of dialed it back and got into the more of the mainstream of theology. They still had an emphasis and still believed it was probably more normative than not that the sign gifts would be in operation, but the charismatic movement became more prominent, and they became, um, I guess, more vocal about where they stood on things and how they differed than the Pentecostal movement. 
And so if, if you throw charismatics in the Pentecostal movement, you, you're, you're, not, you're doing injustice because they're different. And so you need to know that right off the bat. Charismatics were and are not as strict about the baptism of the Spirit and tongues being necessary. In the mid-1980s, we had the third wave movement, which emphasized signs and wonders and miracles that accompany evangelism. John Wimber came along and taught power evangelism, that when you do evangelism, it should be accompanied by miracles and signs, and you should expect that. The vineyard movement came along, which some of you may remember, which brought, in many cases, not all, extreme teachings about the manifestations of the Spirit. We talked about a couple weeks ago about that a little bit. And unfortunately, we saw great excesses and abuses. And the reason I wanted to talk two weeks ago about that is I did not want that to muddy our conversation this morning. Some people make a huge mistake of taking all the sign gifts and the abuses they've seen and kind of throwing it all over there and say, I just don't want to deal with it. That's a mistake. Scriptures don't do that. And so why do I bring up all this history? One, it causes us to be careful. We're not the first on the scene to consider these things. It's not like we're like, oh, hi, we, what's with this tongues and prophecy? I mean, we're not the first ones to wrestle with it. It also keeps us humble. You see, you and I need church history to keep us on track. The reality is there are some issues there's room in the body to agree to disagree. But I think we also can have confidence that the Holy Spirit can guide us into truth and to a biblical perspective on things. And so that's what I hope will happen this morning. Sorry about the history lesson, but I think it's important for us to understand that the ministry of the Holy Spirit has been studied and disagreed on throughout the years. But I also want to clarify a couple things. Two words, two camps, if I may. There's one camp called cessationist. Big word, if you break it down, think of the word cease. Cessationists would say that miraculous gifts in the apostolic ministry came to an end with the passing of the apostolic era when God uniquely endowed the early Christians with miraculous signs that attested to the truth of the risen Christ. This position isn't anti-supernatural. They believe God still does supernatural according as he sovereignly wills. Yet this position contends that with the closing of the New Testament canon, in other words, when, when all the books of the New Testament were um, discerned to be scripture, when that happened, the miraculous gifts were no longer necessary, i.e., they ceased. That's one position, cessationist. They believe these sign gifts have ceased. The continuationist, on the other hand, as you can kind of tell by the word, believe the sign gifts continue. There's really two offshoots of continuationists. There's the third wave position. This position teaches that all the gifts of the Holy Spirit mentioned in the New Testament are still valid today. And that all the gifts for believers today are to be operative in the church until Jesus returns. Meaning one can expect miraculous gifts will be a regular part of church life. That's the third wave position. But there's another continuation offshoot I would call open but cautious. They're open, this position, that all the spirits are operative today. They would hold to that. 
yet it holds that the primary role of the miraculous gifts were to attest and authenticate the identity of the Lord and his work in redemption. And that the miraculous gifts should not be surprising to us, yet we should not expect the sign gifts to the extent the early Christians did. And so an open but cautious position would say they're not normative in the world, but they haven't ceased. And they would say that the primary reason of the sign gifts is to attest to the work of God in rising from the dead and giving us the scriptures. So having said all that, <laughs> trying to clarify some things, let's talk about tongues. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14 are the main texts, specifically even probably as much 1 Corinthians 14 as anything. There's three kinds of tongues we read about in Scripture. One is Acts 2, we learn about an actual language where God gave the ability for the gospel to be communicated in a language that the speakers did not know, but that the hearers in Jerusalem, it was in their language. They got to hear in actual language the gospel. God gave that tongue, those tongues, in that context of Pentecost. There's a public tongue. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Talk about a public tongue that's spoken in a congregation. It's not an actual language. I mean, Paul's clear about that. But it's a public tongue. I believe the scriptures also speak of a private tongue. And we'll talk here in a second about that. So you got an actual language, you got a public tongue, and you got a private tongue. And first of all, we learn of tongues and acts that God gave the ability to speak in a known language and a dialect that had never been studied or learned with the goal of spreading the gospel into cultures and nations that never heard Christ. And I would believe that's still happening. I believe there's tribal languages. I certainly would not be surprised if God's still doing that in parts of the world. It's not like God's handcuffed to maybe our restraints we put on him. And when you get right down to it, if we were to think in terms of known language, there was intelligible languages that needed translation. What we read in Acts 2 at Pentecost. There were intelligible languages that needed translation. But secondly, there were unintelligible languages Paul talks about that needed interpretation. We read that in Corinthians. And so in Acts 2, we got intelligible languages that needed translation, and we jump to 1 Corinthians 14. Paul talks about intelligible languages that need, or intelligible languages that need interpretation. Or unintelligible languages that are prayer and praise to God, spoken in syllables not understood by the speaker. Now for some, you're out here, and for some there's some, there's some subjective certainty. As I talk about this, you're like, this is no conversation. I speak in tongues. I've experienced positive examples of tongues with interpretation. And for you, this, no problem at all for you. There's others who maybe have more objective confusion. This seems weird. I've maybe been exposed to really some weird circumstances. And so you come in here going, I'm pretty confused about this whole tongue thing. My point is we're kind of all over the map here as we sit here, and I realize that. And so we need to be aware of each other's at, 
And we also need to approach this again together as we look at scriptures. Now, I'll state clearly right off the bat, I do not believe there's strong biblical evidence for the cessation of tongues. Matter of fact, I think you really got to stretch it to say tongues has ceased. I don't think the scriptures give us a lot of wiggle room with that. I'm going to talk about why here in a moment. And so obviously that would make me a continuationist if you're going to put me in a camp. Um, So not necessarily unbiblical. In 1 Corinthians 14, we have verses 1 through 25. We have the evaluation of the gift of tongues. A couple verses. Verses 2 through 5. Why don't you follow along? For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edification. Go down to verse 12. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, speak to abound for the edification of the church. Verse 23 through 28. Paul writes, If therefore the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're mad? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. So Paul gives an evaluation of the gift, and he says three things in here, which we just read. Tongues without interpretation does not edify the body. He's pretty clear about that. He says prophecy is superior to the gift of tongues. We'll look at that in a second. Within the church. He also says prophecy is superior to the outsider. And so whether it's within the church or to those outside the church, prophecy is superior to tongues. Okay? Paul's been really clear about that. It kind of jumped out, I'm sure, a couple times. I kind of suspect, especially as I look at verse 8 and 9 um, of what Paul writes here, I kind of suspect he was a little unsettled that the Corinthians had put tongues in the forefront. It, the tone of it almost seems like Paul was very distraught that he even had to address this. But he does. And he has to. And we read in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26 to 40, if we go there, we read of the regulation of the gift. We have the evaluation of the gift, it seems, in the first 25 verses. But then when we get to verse 26, let's read verse 26 through 28. We see a, a, a different tone, more of a regulation Paul gives. And if one member's, oh, wrong, wrong chapter. I get so excited here. Verse 26, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Let's, each one is a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, has interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be. By two, or at the most three, in each turn, that let one interpret. So he's given very clear directions here. 
But if there is no interpreter, be quiet. That's my translation. And let him speak to himself and to God. And so Paul gives a regulation of this gift. For edification of the body. Always with an interpreter. Conducted without chaos, without confusion. Not to be forbidden, but certainly to be exercised responsibly. I have a deep conviction in here, and I I could be wrong here, but as we talk about spiritual gifts, I I know of many in conversations over the years who said, "I, I really want the gift of tongues. Or I really want this gift. And, it, and the question I guess I would have for them is why? Why do you want that gift? I think that's a significant question. As I was sitting uh, at a conference with um, Dan and uh, Jay yesterday and my wife, um, there's a few moments in between, and I just really felt as I was reflecting um, that God wanted me to really make a point, so I'm going to make it. <laughs> um, I think when it comes to any of the spiritual gifts, and especially if a desire we have, I think God says, do you love my church? Do you love my church so much? I mean, are you so burdened that my church would become all that it wants to be? Are you that burdened? Is that the cry of your heart? If it is, then use this gift for that. But if you do not love my church, if you do not have a cry in your heart that the church would become all that it could be, don't ask for a gift. Because the reason God gives those gifts is to build up his church. And if that's not the cry of your heart, don't ask for a tongue, don't ask for a prophecy, don't ask for anything until God breaks your heart and says, I want you to love what I love. And I love my church. Make that your passion. And then the gifts start to make a little more sense. I don't think the New Testament gives any room clearly for frenzied, disorderly, out-of-control activity. If you experience that, I encourage you to leave because the Bible doesn't give that as a regulation of -of out-of-control, disorderly behavior. But you notice 1 Corinthians 14 does give a very controlled environment, very controlled situation. If there's a public tongue, it's to be characterized by self-control. It's to edify the church and glorify God. And it will, Paul says, if that's being done. He also, I think, believes or teaches this private tongue. You see it in verse 2, verse 14, verse 15, verse 24, where he talks about the Spirit praying directly to God. Even though his mind didn't have to formulate words and sentences, Now, I ask a question, how does that edify the body? But that's neither here nor there necessarily. But I know and have a great respect for brothers and sisters in Christ who speak privately in tongues. Deep respect. And I see the New Testament, specifically here, 1 Corinthians 14, supporting that, that there is a private tongue. And some would say, well, that was just for the church in Corinth. Remember, this is a prescriptive passage. This isn't a descriptive. Descriptive says this is what happened. Prescriptive says what are we supposed to do, which means this is for all of us, even if you don't experience all of this. And so we need to really approach this as it is. God's giving you and I instructions. We need to pay attention. 
couple things here before we move on to prophecy. I'm running out of time. <laughs> tongues, I don't think, is normal evidence of New Testament faith. I don't think tongues is evidence somebody's saved. I don't think that's true. I don't think tongues is a necessary expression of New Testament faith. I don't believe we can look at somebody and say they're not really very mature in the faith, they're not very spiritual because they don't speak in tongues. I don't think it's a necessary expression of New Testament faith. I believe if one teaches, promotes tongues as normal for all believers, I think you're going farther than the New Testament does. And because the Bible really says very little, I mean, we don't really read of tongues anywhere else in the New Testament. Because it says so very little, we at Elam don't make it much of a focus because the New Testament doesn't make it much of a focus. Matter of fact, Paul even seemed to send a little distraught that it had been brought in the forefront. I would contend from verse 23, even this is probably my perspective, that Paul discourages the public corporate use of it. He seems to prefer more of the small group emphasis, and I think at Elam, I can only speak for myself, I haven't polled the elders on it, um, we encourage it in that atmosphere. Um, we would think that would be more of a healthy atmosphere. But whether you're cessationist or whether you're continuationist, all would agree the priority is the proclamation of the gospel. And that, we would all agree. And proclamation of what communion's all about. What about prophecy? 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12. Key passage in this. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child. I think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man... I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now these three, but now abide, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. What do we learn here? What we do learn here is this gift of prophecy is temporary. Notice he says right off the bat of what I read here. He says, for we know in part, prophesy in part, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So we know prophecy will cease. Matter of fact, cessationists and continuationists both agree with that, that prophecy will cease. It's the time <laughs> that they disagree on. Cessationists say, you know, when the perfect comes that Paul talks about here, that perfect was when the scriptures were complete. When the New Testament apostles by the Holy Spirit declared, this is the complete canon and revelation of Scripture. The cessationists would say that's the perfect. I don't agree with that. I don't think the context of 1 Corinthians 13 would support that. I think it would support what the continuationist declares. And that is, that's when Jesus comes. Prophecy will cease when Jesus comes. When we see face to face. Matter of fact, Paul says in another portion, don't despise prophecy. Paul wouldn't say that if it had ceased. But he says test and weigh prophecy. Test and, and, and pay attention. Is it lining up with the scriptures? Which is important. 
because it makes you and I then understand a little bit more about what I would say, the categories of prophecy. Because a question would come, okay, Matt, if you're saying there's a gift of prophecy today, does that mean there's going to be Jeremiah's and, and Isaiah's and Ezekiel's that come along? Are there going to be new authoritative truth proclaimed? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Scripture's complete. It is completely authoritative. There's one category the Scriptures speak of false prophecy. Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, Jeremiah 23, when there were those who were dishonest, their speech was based on no revelation. They ignored divine scripture. They claimed to speak for God, but they lied. Their teaching was deceptive. So great was that sin that God said, stone them. There's false prophecy. There's true prophecy. Isaiah, Ezekiel. Ezekiel, Isaiah, and um, Jeremiah, they never said, hey, test what I'm saying. Weigh what I'm saying carefully. Oh, no, they said, thus saith the Lord. There was authority behind it. That was true prophecy. In the Old Testament, we had the prophets, the New Testament counterparts, the apostles, and they came with a divine authority and said, this is true. You don't need to weigh this. Thus saith the Lord. So you had false prophecy, you had true prophecy, and now you have the gift of prophecy. And this clearly seems to be not only what Paul's talking about, but it certainly seems to be a different level, different type, if that's the right word. It's the kind of prophecy that we should weigh carefully. It's the kind of prophecy we should test. There, you see, I think there's a speech that's spirit-prompted talk. It's something the Holy Spirit brings to mind. It's an indirect speech the Spirit prompts one to speak based on what's already been spoken, the Word of God. The gift of prophecy is imperfect. It is fallible. Now I know a question going through your mind is, how could the Spirit prompt it if there's error? Well, because there's human vessels. Think about it. Every spiritual gift could be error. There could be error in it because there's human vessels involved. I would... It would be great, but I would certainly be misled to think every time I stood up and preached, I never made an error. Oh, man. I seek God. Believe me. God, please, shut my mouth if anything comes out that's not of you. And, but I know, being a human vessel, it's happened. I know people maybe who've gone and used the gift of encouragement have gone to other people, and I encouraged you to do this, and they were wrong. They shouldn't have encouraged them to do that. And so... Maybe somebody had the gift of giving and they went and gave towards something that God didn't want them to give towards. I, my point is there's human vessels involved here. And so we need to remember that no matter what the gift, and certainly with the gift of prophecy. And so I think it's important we understand what it is and what it isn't. And there's two implications here. Don't forget God's word alone is and contains authoritative truth. There will not be new apostles and prophets who come along who give new authoritative truth. That won't happen. Scripture's sufficient. It's complete. It's true. So know the Scriptures. Know the Word. That's why we study the Word. However, consider that the Spirit may grant a gift of prophecy to apply scriptural truth in certain times and in certain situations. Spirit may lead someone with Spirit-prompted talk to share something with you. 
What do you do with it? You do what Paul said. Test it. Weigh it carefully against Scripture. That's what I believe this gift of prophecy is. I don't think we're supposed to go seek out prophecy. I don't think we're supposed to go to large ministries that, that, that boast of that. No, I think within the local church, which is our context, I think God gifts people. And this, there's a lot of overlap. I was having a conversation with somebody about the overlap sometimes of spiritual gifts. If somebody comes and says, you know what, I see God's hand on your life. I, I really think God could use you in this area. Is that prophecy or is it encouragement? A little overlap, huh? And so sometimes maybe we just need to quit trying to scrutinize everything and, and just say, is this from you, God? And if it's a gift of prophecy, a gift of encouragement, who cares? If this is from you, God. I want to act on it, right? And so the gift of prophecy, don't make the mistake of throwing it at the level of Scripture, but don't throw it out either. I believe it's a gift God gives to the church that continues for the edification of others. Always come back to that. Remember, that's the goal of all gifts. It is 1 Corinthians 14.3. But one who prophesies speaks to men. Why? For the edification and exhortation and consolation. In other words, one who loves the church and whose cry is that the church becomes all God wants, then use that gift. It's not your cry. Please don't. Because the motive will be wrong. I don't have it all figured out, and I'm not going to be publishing a book anytime soon. <laughs> um, if I do, I don't know, maybe you don't want to buy it. I don't know. I do know this. God wants his children to love his church so much that we invite the Spirit of God into using whatever gifts he's given us to build his church up. Let's keep that as our focus. And when we do, I believe the Holy Spirit's going to do just that. He's going to use each of us, the gifts he's given us, to build up one another for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, I am deeply convinced this morning. As I look at my brothers and sisters, and, and I'm sure we could look around and probably disagree with each other on these things, I do know this, Lord, that your people in this place at Elam, we all want to magnify you. We agree. You are majestic. And we want to lift you up. We want you to be glorified. We want you to be praised in our midst. That's our greatest hunger, God. I also believe, Lord, here at Elam, we want your church to be built up. We want to love what you love. And I know we agree on that. And so, Lord, I know that as we talk about sometimes things that aren't either crystal clear or I guess there's differing views. We don't spend time, Lord, on those. As much as we just really move forward in what we know to be crystal clear, to magnify your name, to glorify you, and to build up your church. Thank you for the gifts you've given to the body. Help us to appreciate them, not to undervalue them, but also, Lord, not to lift them up to a place that is too important. So whatever extreme, God, protect us from that so that, again, in all things you're praised and your church is built up. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.